welcome back to the Counter Narrative, a platform where we delve into thought-provoking discussions. I am Rihanat Ojoba, and with me is the incredible, amazing, beautiful, and talented Tiara Lua Oluwa Bukumifade. Hi, Rihanat. Hello, listeners. Today, we're thrilled to have with us Dr. Tim Northbeam, an NHS emergency medicine consultant, the medical lead for Devon Air Ambulance, and a clinical academic in emergency medicine. Dr. Nordbeam's extensive experience in emergency medicine and critical care, coupled with his academic work, makes him a highly respected figure in his field. Let's dive into our conversation with Dr. Nordbeam. Hello. Hi, Dr. Nordbeam. It's good to have you here today. Hello. Good morning. Many thanks for having me on the podcast. Good morning. Could you debunk two myths about women's health care that is not backed by science? Um, so I, I think the two myths which are worth talking about today are one, are women the weaker sex? And two, that healthcare is equitably distributed. So science shows us that women are not the weaker sex. They do much better from birth up until old age, whether it be response to disease or infection, whether it be traumatic in- instances, whether it be preterm babies, Women seem to do better and they seem better genetically prepared to, to deal with what life throws at us. The second point was around equitable healthcare. So I think we imagine that healthcare is distributed equitably between males and females and that the healthcare system is tuned to both males and females. And whenever we study this, whenever we look at it, we realize that this isn't the case. And whether it be due to biological factors or gender related factors, or often, the healthcare system's response to such factors, uh, women tend to have not equitable access to healthcare. Uh, for example, pain medications, chest compressions in CPR, or access to medicines such as tranexamic acid when they're bleeding. Thank you for your answer. I think calling the women the weaker sex, women bring life into this world. So imagine calling a woman who goes through pregnancy, labor, delivery, postpartum, the weaker sex. Exactly. Imagine calling someone like that has that goes through all of that the weaker sex. I don't think that word should exist anywhere in the world. That's that's ridiculous, you know. (laughs) In your clinical investigation about tranexamic acid major trauma, it was found that women are less likely to receive TXA than men. What, in your opinion, causes this disparity? In this study, we looked at major trauma patients in the United Kingdom. So people who had major injuries. And one of the things that we like to do if someone's got a major injury is give them this medicine, tranexamic acid, and it helps stop bleeding. And we know from big studies that we've carried out throughout the world that it helps reduce the chances of you dying if you've had an injury. We looked at the Trauma Audit Research Network, which is a big database in the UK, which captures outcomes from all trauma patients. And we looked at the difference between men and women. And uh, we, were, we were shocked by what we found. So we found that women were half as likely than, than men to receive this life-saving treatment. It's important the study just kind of shows this relationship and it breaks it down and we can see the relationship, whether it be a car accident or whether it be a high level fall or whether it be a stabbing incident, what what that difference is between men and women. And women are always coming off worse in terms of access to this medicine. 
I think some of it is due to how we're taught in medical school and the stereotypes of what normal trauma is. So many of the ways that we're taught and many of the manuals that we have access to uh, use males as an example. So if you attend a trauma course or if you have a look in your manual, it's often a young man that's been injured. And as such, I think our healthcare systems and how we are, uh, kind of our approach is tuned towards looking for trauma in that age group. Many of the studies that have been conducted have been have disproportionate males in them. So particularly pre-1980s, pre-1990s, most studies were conducted uh, on white people and most studies were conducted on, on, on white males particularly. So a lot of our learning from healthcare is tuned towards males and towards the white male group particularly. And um, obviously there's been lots of work by groups like Gendro to help, uh, help surface this and also address this moving forwards. And things are, they're not perfect, but they are much better now than they used to be. So I think there's lots and lots of factors. So there is what is considered normal trauma, how we train and educate our trauma professionals, the mechanism of injuries that women suffer are slightly different from the mechanisms injuries of men. Um, and yeah, that, that creates these biases. I think it's also important there's a lot of unknowns out there. So we do need to investigate it further and see perhaps there is there is there an issue with the gender of the caregiver compared to the gender of uh, the care receiver. So much more work needs to be done, but it's a complex area that our finding is um, uh, is shocking and worthy of further investigation. Okay, um, thank you, Dr. Notbeam. So um, recently I so read a tweet she went and to remove, the person was like, uh, she went to I think, a problematic tooth and her husband did the same thing in the same hospital. But then she was given a lighter painkiller than her husband was. It, they gave him a stronger dose and they, they gave her something light just for the pain so there's this there's this perception that women exaggerate pain like they're hysterical and that they undo pain better which i think is responsible for the um lower level of painkillers they give women and men in the same situation do you is there science to back up this perception Uh, so we know that uh, women are more like are, are less likely to receive adequate pain relief than men. Um, my expertise lies in the emergency scenarios, um, and we know that women attending the emergency department are less likely to receive the same painkiller milligrams per kilogram uh, compared to men. Um, we know that these uh, painkillers are as effective for males and females, um, and uh, yeah, it's difficult to investigate uh, people's individual pain experience. But when we do have a look at people's individual pain experience, whether you use a pain score or whether you use another marker, we are less good at treating with pain in women. So I think we need to separate out people's pain experience and their individual toughness to pain or how resilient they might be to pain and the healthcare system's response to it. Uh, and painkillers should be titrated and offered equitably regardless of your sex or your gender uh, based on your pain needs rather than any of those other factors. Okay, so if I understand you correctly, you're saying that there's basically there's no scientific backing for 
saying women undo pain better women are exaggerating and men are less likely to take pain or to undo pain better it just depends on the individual involved in that situation right uh yes that's my interpretation of the of the science available in this area people's pains response are different uh and the effect of gender and sex uh isn't an issue we should be tailoring care to the patient in front of us and their individual pain experience okay thank you for the answer i think it's ridiculous to say that women are the weaker sex and, and then, then in the same line you say they undo pain better, better. <laughs> How it's it, it does it doesn't make sense. The patriarchy is very ironical. It's deeply rooted, honestly. <laughs> and you know, it's like the conversation we have about oh, head of house. As a head of house, you should be in charge of the house. Why is this the same weaker sex that has to do child care, domestic labor, nine to five, and everything? It's, it's know, the patriarchy. The, 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 the patriarchy is is very it's, funny. It's deeply rooted, and you know, people do not see this. Like it's like they are tired before they realize. Oh my god. That didn't make sense. How are you saying somebody is weak, but they should be the one to carry more burden in a household? It's ridiculous to be honest. It is. <sighs> Away from that, um, female healthcare female healthcare professionals often face gender based by gender bias and harassment. As a feminist ally, how do you address these issues, particularly with male colleagues who may not be as aware? Uh, so. We all know that gender-based issues and misogyny uh, exist in every workplace to to a various extent. Uh, and we all have a role in trying to challenge these behaviours and try to, to move things forwards. Um, healthcare, uh, despite being an environment where a majority of the employees are, are women or females, um, is certainly uh, not exempt from this. And we have our own issues uh, in the NHS. I think there's lots that we can do. So uh, education is really important and raising awareness of these issues, making sure that people are aware of the importance of uh, you know, training in diversity and inclusion, make sure people really understand what unconscious bias is and what misogyny is. Um, and when kind of microaggressions do occur or inappropriate behaviour does occur, kind of we need to tackle that and, and, and make sure that we tackle that effectively. I think leadership is really, really important and have kind of women modeling what good leadership is uh, and um, setting a positive tone in the workplace is a really important bit of, of how we raise these issues and how we uh, promote these issues and make, uh, and make our workplaces move forward in this area. Um, and obviously, as part of that, we need to ensure that we've got diversity in those leadership roles, whether that be diversity by gender or, or sex uh, or uh, racial background and, and all the other things which we know that uh, power is, is related to. Um, of course, we need some degree of enforcement and that needs good policy, good HR policy. Um, and, and that needs to be clearly communicated so people, people know uh, what's acceptable and more importantly what's unacceptable and we need lots of ways of reporting when these behaviour um, occur whether that be to a friend, to a buddy, whether that be through a formal HR process, whether that be through our line manager. Um, there's lots of stuff as well around how we organise our workplaces to make them uh, have equal opportunities for men and female, uh, for males and females. So. Uh, 
one of the issues that we have in medicine is that it's uh, a very full-time or more than full-time culture. A lot of the training opportunities um, occur in people's life cycle when they're just thinking about starting a family and having children. And many of our workplaces uh, uh, and training schemes involve moving around the country or moving around the world or extended periods of travel, which just don't fit with uh, you know, uh, having a baby. Um, and actually how we kind of promote work-life balance, how we create equal opportunities and how we kind of build these into how we advertise our jobs, uh, how the jobs are uh, related in terms of travel, uh, time and, and all those other things which actually make them genuinely equal opportunities to males and females. Um, I think it's important that we keep an eye on these things and we understand when these incidents are occurring, we hold perpetrators accountable, we report these incidents so it becomes part of a culture of learning. Um, and then I think the, the thing that we often forget is that we forget to seek feedback from our employees. We don't ask them, how can we do better? Um, how can we do better in addressing these incidents? How can we do better in um, building a safe and inclusive culture? So there's lots, <laughs> I guess in summary, there's lots and lots of stuff that we can do. Um, uh, and I think we've made baby steps in, in the workplaces that I work in, but there's always more work to do there. Okay, thank you for, for that robust answer because you touched on a lot of things, the policies, the um, personal, the interpersonal part of it and all of So thank you very much for that. So I'm going to take you back to one of the things you first said when we got on this conversation. You mentioned that a lot of the research, for a lot of medical research are tailored for men and mostly white men. So it leads to people saying stuff like the woman's body is a mystery, stuff like that. Like they say things like that. It was just recently I read a, a research talking about how um, the pain from childbirth is can be equated to a gunshot in the leg. It was recent. It was a recent research. And you know, it was funny to me because we may complain about childbirth and how painful it is, but it took a team to just it, it took a team to go and do the research recently i think it was last year or this year that they just did the research so a lot of things about women are not understood because clinical research do not focus on that so how do you think we can bridge this gap where the woman doesn't have where we have more knowledge on the workings of a woman's body how do you think we can bridge the gap and do you think do, do you see a future like in near future where this is going to be possible um so there's 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 lots of aspects to that question and many of the answers i guess are similar to uh, the answers around how we tackle misogyny in the workplace because this isn't about workplace misogyny it's about research misogyny and how how we tackle that is probably in similar ways and I've seen some excellent work done uh, by groups like The Lancet and Gendro around tackling some of these issues. So um, we, uh, we need to put women's health on the agenda. We need to ensure that when we publish studies, that we publish the outcomes for men and we publish the outcomes for women. Funders of studies need to ensure that if it is, though, though, that there's equitable funding for conditions which affect men, like prostate cancer, and issues which affect women, which you've kind of, uh, whether it be childbirth experience or whether it be many of the other potential health issues. 
Um, I do see real steps moving forwards um, and uh, many of the major health journals now have a, a gender inclusive policy. They have policies around what work they publish. Uh, they ensure that women's health is equitably represented. And it's the same for the funders and it's the same for the universities. So I do see some real positive steps uh, moving uh, moving forwards. Um, you know, and, and once again, uh, we need policies which support that. We need to analyze data. We need to look at what is published and if it is fair and equitable and call out when it's not. Uh, and we need to seek feedback and say, what what is missing from our understanding of, of women's health? Uh, once again, uh, we've made some steps forward, but there's much work to do. Okay. You know, right. speaking of women being overlooked, there was a time where it was not acceptable. It wasn't okay for a woman to say that she wanted to, she wants to be a doctor. It was seen as a taboo because why do you want to be a doctor? You can be so many things lesser than being a doctor. Besides, if you're a doctor, who's going to take care of your children? Who's going to cook for your husband? We still have these conversations. You have people in conversations, yeah. they'll say that, uh, so you want to be a doctor, who is going to care for the home? And it makes women not even want to practice medicine because they are seen as we're not seen as people that should achieve the status of caring for other people by being doctors because someone has to stay home to watch the children or something as simple as cooking and it's so funny because the woman is a caregiver in the house yes and being a doctor is more about giving care yes so it makes no sense to that say, say that women can't be doctors but they can Keep, they can give care in the house so it's like women can it's the same thing with cooking women we have more male, male chefs, chefs in the world well paid than we have women but women are the ones supposed to be the ones doing the cooking so it's just really it's ironical it, it is. is actually yes it's, <sighs> always, it's, it's, it's always really ironical like, yeah and we are we are seeing change in that uh, we are seeing change in that area so between 75 and 8%, 80% of um, medical students in the UK are, are women. So, you know, and we've still got many leadership roles in the NHS taken by, by men, particularly white men, but we are seeing that change and we've seen really, really good work in terms of inclusive workplace policies, uh, women in leadership roles, uh, community engagement, like STEM education, many things which are helping us to address this balance so um I, I completely understand and have empathy for the challenge that you describe but i think we are we are moving forwards uh, in in that role and uh particularly uh in the uk i, I think it's well accepted that that you know women are excellent doctors uh, and and that gender disparity has has, has all but disappeared that was, that was very enlightening. You published a paper on gender differences and motor vehicle collision outcomes. Can you share the motivation behind this research, your key findings and your thoughts on why certain injuries are more common in women? Uh, okay, uh, so I've got an interest in post-collision care. So everything which happens following a motor vehicle collision. So when you have a motor vehicle collision, you have a transfer of energy uh, and sometimes that's obtunded or made smaller by a seat belt or an airbag or a crumple zone uh, and then you've got the individual who's in the car as well and now have their own propensity to get injured based on their their sex based on their age based on their comorbidities 
um, you know, uh, and perhaps how frail or fragile their bones are. And, and that's my area of interest. And I was particularly interested, I've, I've done a range of studies looking at different aspects of motor vehicle collisions. And I read uh, a book, which I'd highly recommend called uh, Invisible Women. And it talked about many of the factors that we've talked about today, about the issues with people underreporting the, you know, uh, the difference between male and female outcomes. And I had this big data set with 70,000 road traffic collisions in, and I thought, I'll take a look and see if there is a difference. Uh, and there was. Um, and then we, we investigated that further using various statistical techniques. So what did we find? So uh, women are more likely to have injuries of the pelvis and more likely to have injuries of the spine. Uh, and in many other ways, the outcomes are the same. However, one of the key findings was that women were much more likely to be trapped following a motor vehicle collision. So following a motor vehicle collision, you can imagine that sometimes the shape of the car changes around you and that leads to entrapment. Uh, so you're more likely to be stuck in the car. And we know that those people have worse outcomes. They're more likely to die. So uh, why, why might this be? Why do women get more injuries of the pelvis? Why do women get more injuries of the spine? And why do women are more likely to be trapped? I think this is there's multiple factors here, some of which are biologically related and some of which are gender related. So the biological factors are, is that a woman's, woman's pelvis is different to a male pelvis. And a woman's spine, particularly the ligamentous aspects of the spine, the ligaments, is different to a male spine. But the rest of it is probably gendered behaviours. So, uh, women are more likely to have a side impact collision. So they're more likely to be hit from the side, uh, whereas men are more likely to be hit from the front. Uh, and when you have a side impact collision, you can imagine that, that that might crush your pelvis or squeeze your pelvis. Uh, and also it's more likely to involve the door, so you're more likely to be trapped. However, uh, I don't think that's the main problem. I think the main problem is that cars have been designed around a male norm. So car testing, the safety testing for cars is based around a 70 kilogram male mannequin, not round a female anthropomorphic mannequin. And often when you test a vehicle from a safety perspective with a male mannequin and then a female mannequin, their safety rating drops very, very significantly. And it's only recently that female mannequins, so female crash test dummies have been used to test cars. So effectively, your car is set up to look after a man and it's not set up to look after a woman. And as a result, women are more likely to have significant injuries and women are more likely to die in the same motor vehicle collision. There's a secondary thing as well, and it's about how uh, um, we kind of distribute safe vehicles in an inequitable way. So if you get a traditional male-female partnership, uh, the male is more likely to drive the modern car and the male is more likely to drive uh, uh, the car with the most safety features and the bigger car. So the male not only has a car which is designed to keep him safe, but also has the most modern safe car to drive as well. Whereas the female tends to get the older, less safe vehicle and none of these cars have been designed around uh, protecting females. So there's, there's many, many issues there, some of which I've just touched upon. Um, 
both in terms of biological characteristics, uh, the characteristics of the accidents that we have, but very importantly, how cars are designed and how cars are designed around the male norm rather than the female norm. Oh, wow. You know, this is this is all very, very shocking indeed, because you, you spoke about the fact that it was just recently started trying um, car safety with female mannequin. And it's, it's crazy because, so do, do they mean that women do not get into the cars? Like, why they do not make um why they do not make provision for the safety of women it's i don't know it's shocking to me like why would they do that and women make up make, make up all, almost half of the population of the world like 49 point so many percent and they're designing cars without putting these people in mind it's it's just baffling it really is baffling i think there is mis- i think there is misogyny almost everywhere yes actually i say that because when you were talking when you were talking about the car design i was like okay is it do we call it car industry sexism or automotive misogyny and i say that because i'm muslim and sometimes when you go to some place of worships you see smaller spaces for women and bigger spaces for men and i call it architectural misogyny because are you, because when there are smaller spaces, it does not allow so many women be in a place of worship. That way, we miss out on the spirituality of worshiping in a mosque. But we have this larger spaces for men. So you can have 1,000 men and maybe like, what, 10 women. That's not fair. So where should, you, where should the rest of the women be? It's not fair. No one should have to miss out on being able to worship where they feel very spiritual and all of that so and this links to the car industry as well they are designing cars mainly mainly for men mainly for men it's so it's i don't know it's actually really it's shocking i'll keep saying it's shocking because you know like i i know that when 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 there are accidents we see that women tend to suffer more they get they get to have more serious injuries than men so honestly i had no idea that it was because of the design that it was mostly designed for men so um thank you for sharing this with us thank you for sharing it and for doing the research it's it's eye-opening to be honest you you, you know it's funny because my next question had to do with medical misogyny and i i mean we're short of words because you experience medical misogyny all the time so what advice would you give what advice would you give in navigating this challenging situation in the medical field what advice would i give as a patient or what advice would i give as a healthcare worker looking to challenge it well both both okay i i think we've we've discussed some of the Um, How do you challenge misogyny in your workplace? We've talked about leadership role models. We've talked about policies and procedures. We've talked about supportive cultures. Uh, We've talked about calling it out when it occurs. We've talked about the importance of education um, and and kind of dealing with everything from microaggressions all the way through to HR type type issues as well. Um, I think as a patient, it's um it's a real challenge uh, and i don't have much experience from the other side from seeing it from a patient's perspective but i think we all need to be aware of these issues and try to educate ourselves around these issues and then when we see them we need to feel empowered to challenge them um, and i know that's incredibly difficult particularly with often this power gradient between uh, a clinical health provider be it a nurse or a doctor and and, and you as a patient 
But often, um, you know, uh, once these issues are raised uh, and once a healthy kind of balanced, psychologically safe discussion occurs, uh, then a no, then 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 a way forward can be found. Um, but there is something around education. There is something around accepting that we've got a problem, and there is something around empowering our patients to ask. I have I, I have a question, and I, this is very personal. This is very personal. This is very personal. We cannot talk about trauma, collision, accidents without talking about pregnant women. And in conversations with our peers, when we have this conversation, because, you know, it's easy to say, oh, this will never happen to me. God forbid. But like, you know what? Let's, what if these things happen? And I hear answers. And I'd like to ask you personally, I know you see lots of pregnant women would have been brought to the emergency. And you, you know, that conversation around mother or unborn baby. We hear so many people amongst us fight so strongly. And in, they say that, oh, they would rather save their unborn baby over their wives and because we're women we have conversations like again you can you probably might if you marry for companionship it means that you want to have your partner for the rest of your life or to death do your part or whatever does your part you know you can have another baby why do you aggressively fight to save your child's life when you should be saving your other half's life no but the thing is they don't get to make that decision it's just a sweeter conversation Right? Oh, it, do they? Oh, they don't. They don't get to make that decision. It's not doctor. I thought it was a no, doctor no, no. asking the the no. partner, "Do you want us to save the mother or the baby?" Or no. doctors have come to debunk it. It's the doctors who make the decision. Oh, okay. Right. Uh, right. Okay. Team. Uh, so the, the ethical framework here is: if you look after the mother, then you you will save you will save the baby. We very, very rarely or never have to make a decision between saving a mom and, and, and saving a child. Very occasionally, there's an issue where perhaps the woman has been very, very majorly injured and would otherwise die. And we can keep her alive using intensive care and those sorts of things until the baby is safe to deliver. But that woman would have died regardless uh, we're just kind of extending that process so that the baby can be delivered safely. But our ethical framework is very clear. We look after the mom, and by looking after the mom, you protect the child. Look after the mom. Yes, that's that. The yeah, the yes. um, doctors came to debunk it that time. On like they came to debunk it. Oh, fantastic! Fantastic. Yes. So, following your findings on gender differences in collision outcomes. How do you think we can we can address these disparities and reduce them to the barest minimum? Uh, uh, um, uh, I um, so in more recent years we have seen cars which have been equitably tested for for males and for females and are safe both for males and for females. Uh, and uh, I, ideally, you know, we would use the purchasing power of the market to 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 invest in those vehicles and people to realise and those who manufacture cars realise how important it is to the population. So I know that some really good work happened in other areas of the world where they've uh, enabled, uh, um, uh, they've increased, They've, enabled, they've educated car purchasers around what is important when choosing a car. And as a result, have encouraged 
manufacturers to make safety systems more universally available and also at a lower price. Because often, particularly for certain markets, manufacturers are producing the cheapest car possible rather than the, the best car possible. Uh, and it's only by consumer pressure that we can make these things change. Of course, there is a role for legislation and it'd be fantastic if the United Nations uh, and other groups which set car um, manufacture standards made sure that cars were tested equitably um, and tested equitably for all markets, not just the premium market or for the higher income country market. All right. Um, thank you for this conversation. We've we've been able to shed light on a couple of on a couple of um, structural misogyny and and also find um, ways to address it. So, what final words would you leave with our listeners before we let you go? Uh, I I think many people still struggle to accept that our world has been crafted around the white male norm. And I think it's really difficult to move forward and address some of these inequities until we get those people on board. And sometimes those conversations are really challenging and sometimes that's really difficult. Uh, but actually bringing everyone along on this journey is, is a really important part of, of, of success. So uh, for those of you promoting this work like yourselves, uh, uh, thank you. Uh, I think we're making small steps in the right direction, uh, but I'd encourage you know, your listeners to continue challenging it where they see it, but also trying to bring people along on the journey with them so they can understand some of these issues, whether it be for education or whether it through be through uh, no, modeling of great behaviors. Thank you for sharing your expertise with us and for the work you're doing. You're doing amazing and you, the work you're doing on medical misogyny is truly inspiring. So thank you very much. Thank you to our listeners. We hope that this episode has shed light on important aspects of women's healthcare and the challenges within the medical profession. Remember to subscribe to the Counter Narrative podcast for more enlightening discussions. Follow us on Instagram at the Counter Narrative Podcast. And you can also follow us on Twitter at the CN underscore podcast. And we're also on TikTok at the Counter Narrative Podcast. So you can follow us anywhere and we want you to stay informed, stay empowered, and until next time, goodbye. Bye, everyone. Thank Bye. you. Bye.